the start, and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 37 of Clean Tech Talk, the laryngitis edition. I'm Matthew Klippenstein, your afflicted co-host, here with Nicholas Zart. As a quick reminder, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com, and if you've been enjoying the podcast, please give us a review on iTunes to make it easier for others to discover us. How are things for you and your voice this week, Nicholas? <laughs> Matthew, I'm so sorry to hear your voice. I just got over mine a few days ago, so my voice is a little bit better. But yeah, I'm on the East Coast. I've traveled to Atlanta, Georgia, and it is beautiful, but... It got much colder than I anticipated, and the humidity level is pretty high, so I, I got a cold within a day of being here. But fortunately, I'm, I'm over it, so I hope yours uh, clears up quickly, or at least in time for next week's podcast. That would be nice. Maybe we'll uh, start off with our final part three of our foray into two-wheeled electric transport by discussing the LMX motorcycle that you had found online. I, I know I'm really uh, doing a lot of two-wheelers right now and everything, but it's really exciting because progression with electric vehicles, you know, four wheels at least, hasn't been as fast-paced as I would like it to be, but it definitely is happening when it comes to two wheels. A lot of new electric motorcycles are coming out, and Zero Motorcycles' new 2018 uh, motorcycles, the range just really bumped up again like crazy. They are, they're estimating 220 miles with city driving which is, you know, pretty much on par with, uh, with a Tesla at this age. However, on the highway, that dwindles back down to about 120, 125 miles, which is still, I think, plenty enough to get to wherever. And those motorcycles have a level two recharging capacity. So, you know, you can pretty much fill up very quickly with that. But the, the, the LMX uh, 161 is, uh, is a company that reached out to us and introduced a really neat concept. And then before I explain this concept, maybe I should also say that Electric motorcycles are heavy, and that's something that we've talked about before, and it makes sense, and it's normal. Batteries are what they are right now, and they're pretty, uh, pretty heavy. In fact, the Uber electric motorcycle, the Lightning uh, motorcycle, what is it, the LS281, uh, it's about 500, maybe 550 pounds. And, you know, zero motorcycles are pretty heavy, too. Uh, KTMs are pretty heavy. So all of these guys are really going at it with power. And that means, of course, bigger electric motors, bigger battery packs, which means heavier frames. So what Adam Mercier, this French guy, and his partner, Luca, did was that they were both working on a Lotus version of, of electric motorcycles. Let's do something light. So they designed a, a beautiful aluminum frame that they basically were able to put a much smaller pack in there, much smaller electric uh, motor in it. And they have, although they call it an electric motorcycle, it's almost like an electric bicycle that has the potential of being a motocross motorcycle. So I, I loved it. I love the philosophy. They have an Indiegogo campaign right now, which you'll see in the, in the notes for the show. And they're already halfway through uh, their, their fixed goal of um, 50,000 euros. So this is really exciting. These guys are engineers, so they're doing a heck of a lot as far as engineering a light frame. They're doing a, a really good job with it. And of course, um, we hopefully I'll have the story ready by the time the podcast is out. But I had a wonderful interview with Adam, 
And let's just say that this is something I'd like to have in my backyard. So here's the kicker. Somewhere on the, the press release, they were saying that it comes with pedals. So I asked him, I said, well, hang on, Adam. I mean, a motorcycle doesn't have a, any pedals, right? He goes, yeah, but for the U.S. market, if you have pedals, then it becomes a street legal quote-unquote electric motorcycle, electric bicycle. And I thought, well, that's a really great idea. So that will be able to, it'll be available in the U.S. with, uh, with pedals, which means you'll be able to ride it on the street. Now, it weighs in at 42 kilos, so it's under 100 pounds. And it's the kind of thing you'll be able to ride, well, in canyons if you live near canyons, but up and down forests. And I, I'm really excited about it. So cross your fingers, hopefully in a few months, they'll be able to send one out in Los Angeles and I will try it out. And I'm very excited about it. So it's called the LMX 161. And the reason it's called 161 is that it can accommodate 161 Panasonic batteries. Isn't that cool? Really? So, so it was based on the battery capacity that it, they got the name. Yeah, I, I asked him, I said, okay, you got to tell me what is that LMX 161? So these guys were MX fanatics before, and so they wanted to just do use the same name. So I asked, I said, so you're going to have 171, and you're going to have 121 and all that? They go, yeah, absolutely. I forgot to mention, they're very much into open source. They want to make the platform as open source as possible, meaning that you can actually order just the frame and put your own pack in it and your own BMS in it and your own electric motor. So that's the route they're going now, although obviously at some point it'll have to be pretty much settled into a given specific pack and a given specific electric motor. But the platform is pretty open, and that's the one thing that I just, I just loved. I thought this is exactly what, what we all need because I know what batteries I want to use. I know what electric motor I want to use. And you know, I might have a special relationship with a company or another. I don't automatically want to be stuck with, uh, with someone or another. So it's, it's definitely open source, and I'm very excited to see that because the world of electric vehicles would gain a heck of a lot by going open source right now. I guess one question I would have is, would you think that the more of the early buyers would be cyclists sort of crossing over into the uh, motorcycle or motocross market, or do you think it would be more bikers, you know, motorcycle riders, who would be downsizing a little bit with respect to their motorcycle? That's a great question, and that's something that I did ask him, and he said, you know, it's the equivalent of an 85cc, so, so not super powerful, but just light enough to have fun in the, in the, in the woods without going full on, you know. So I'm, I'm assuming that it will appeal to those who already have nice electric bikes, three, four, five thousand dollars, and by the way, um, the expected price of that is about six to seven thousand. So it's not that much of a leap forward. So it will definitely attract these guys, but it will definitely also attract those who have bigger bikes and just want something a little bit more utilitarian that they can write down to uh, the drugstore and then come back and on the way there's a trail. Let's take it. So I think it will really it'll be a niche market for sure, but it'll definitely attract electric bike lovers and motocross lovers who just want something a little bit smaller, just like a fun little trial kind of bike. So it, it's definitely a very niche market. And I think these guys really hit it spot on. Right. I guess the challenge might be for people who aren't already in the early adopter segment would be that they might wind up thinking about like a used Nissan Leaf, which wouldn't be that much more expensive than a new two-wheeled vehicle. So this might be more of a beachhead product rather than something which really crosses over into the overwhelming majority of the market. 
And I think it will also be a great starter bike for, for many. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the new generation. You know, they, they see their parents with motocross bikes. And so I think that will be a great first bike to have especially for kids, you know, I mean, learning how to control that, that, that instantaneous torque is going to give them a very good idea of how these bikes uh, work. I mean, obviously you don't want to start someone on a, on a YZ directly because that bike will just take your arms off. So I think it's going to be a great starter bike. And obviously that generation will not only grow up with electric, uh, with electric motors, they will probably most likely ride electric bikes and electric cars most of their lives and maybe have a few vintage vehicles that use uh, gasoline in the garage as a, wow, you guys used to do that? Very interesting kind of thing. So yeah, I think it's going to be a great starter bike. And it's going to be a fun little bike to have around and recharge on the fly when you're not using it. Right. And I guess it's worth noting that even for larger companies, paying attention to the smaller segments or niches can be important, especially if those niches grow, which is kind of what Shell is doing with its announcement that it will install EV chargers at its stations eventually around the world. They had an announcement earlier this year that they would do so for Norway and the UK, I think. But this is certainly the first case where one of the oil majors has acknowledged the rise of electric vehicles, acknowledged the need to be able to provide a service to even EV drivers and to have decided to act on this in a world scale as opposed to in certain market niches only. So a very positive thing, which will do a lot to secure Shell's future in a few decades' time. You know, that's, it's so true. I, I remember 10 years ago, we were having the same discussions as to why uh, don't they, meaning petroleum companies and gas stations, why don't they offer charging stations? And I've, of course, gasoline and diesel doesn't mix very well with electricity, but I think they have a handle on that by now. And all pumps are electric after all. So why don't they have charging stations? It, it makes perfect sense. The, the infrastructure is more or less there. They already have industrial currents coming in anyway. I mean, they're, most of these are, are, are fairly big stations. So it wouldn't be that difficult to have a few uh, charging stations out there. It, I guess it amazes me how, to be honest, I guess Shell is not really the first one who's done that before. Uh, we, we, I think BP had done it about 10 years ago, and you will confirm that. But it just makes so much sense. And I can't believe it's taking 10 years to finally say, hey, guys, we're finally going to do that somewhere along the line. Well, yeah, I got, do it right now. This is perfect, you know? Perfect, perfect. Well, 10 years ago, we didn't have any major OEMs having launched electric vehicles. So it would have been difficult for an oil company to justify putting chargers at their stations. But certainly now there is more demand. And so Shell is going to benefit a little bit from being on the front end of this trend. BP did go into renewables somewhat too early. They were in there around the, the millennium, like 1999, 2000-ish. That was a case where they got a bit too optimistic before the prices for solar and wind had come down sufficiently. And with respect to the charging stations, I wonder what the costs would be for these fast chargers relative to simply digging a hole for some container of fuel in the ground and having a pump. Once the fuel tank is in the ground, I would imagine that the costs for everything else relating to gasoline would be a lot cheaper than the costs relating to putting on additional chargers. So I don't think that the fast charging offered at any service station would be that inexpensive. It would probably be priced such that Shell could eventually recoup 
the expenses of putting these fast chargers in, but certainly it would help, especially for people who might not have access to charging stations at home, where they would be able to do regular fill-ups, hopefully not too long, hopefully at locations where the Shell station has some other services, maybe a little Wi-Fi hotspot or something. Yeah, and actually that's that's a good point. But I, I also wanted to um, say that, that there is a lot of maintenance keeping those gasoline tanks hermetically sealed and everything. So they do have to reapprove these things once in a while. They do have to reapprove the uh, gasoline pumps once in a while and everything. So I think the, the electric chargers wouldn't be that much of a difference. Also, I think this might be also a way of introducing a story that we wrote not too long ago, and it's going to be followed by an interview, but Volta is a charging system company that has a wonderful business model. And it's advertised-based, so as you charge, you, you know, get to see a few advertisings, and then you go and walk around and go to the shops around that advertise, and you can get discounts and this and this and that, which also opens up another business model for BP, Shell and everybody. They've been sort of dragging us in to their shops to buy coffee, uh, uh, drinks, and food and everything, while this is a wonderful opportunity to bump up that extra business. Since, since we know that gasoline stations don't really make a heck of a lot of money, by giving them the opportunity to open up a store with more, more things to drag people in, it's a win-win situation for everyone. I mean, can you imagine you just go to a gas station with your electric car, you plug into the uh, electric charger, and then you go in there and you check your email, you just work for about 20 minutes or so, you know, get do all kinds of things and get in your car and there you go. It's about, you know, 40% to 80% charged. It's perfect. I, I think that makes perfect sense. I think the challenge might be on the advertising side there because if I'm going to a gas station, I can already see little ads on the tiny screens that they have. Unless they force people to watch ads, which would be very unpleasant from a consumer experience side, I could imagine that if the charging station ads were visible from a sidewalk, then perhaps there would be a way of recouping the extra expense. But adding an LCD screen, I don't see that the drivers themselves would be valuable enough to an ad company that that would pay for itself. Again, perhaps you could do that if the charging stations were facing a busy sidewalk yeah, and I think that's actually a story that I'll, I'll, I'll answer through the articles I'm going to write on, on Volta with the interview I'm going to have with the CEO. It makes sense, and you're right, in certain cases, and I'm thinking small strip malls or things like that, but even, even gasoline stations are usually near busy intersections with shops and everything. And the way it looks like is, indeed, you would have a fairly large LCD, maybe the size of the uh, uh, at least this, the width of the uh, charging station that would show you, you know, welcome EV drivers, you know, check out this business for this and that, give coupons, give this, give that, whatever you want. And you can do this digitally, of course. And that would entice people to, you know, leave their car parked for about 20 minutes, do some shopping and then come back and, and just walk home. So, I mean, sorry, just drive home. So I think that's the business uh, model idea behind that. But I think I'll, I'll write a more in-depth article on that because I, I love that idea. I think letting people charge for free and having businesses pay for it and attracting them to, uh, to their shops is what we're all about, actually. And, so, and I think we should never underestimate the will of companies to advertise. Well, I'll have to wait for the article. I could imagine that a company might buy a station and then offset the cost somewhat through advertising. But especially now that so many people are addicted to their smartphones, 
if I'm going to bring my car to a fast charger, I don't think I'd be looking at an ad screen at all. I'd hook up, I'd go to the local Starbucks or coffee shop, get the groceries. I could certainly imagine that a grocery chain would have a good use case for having a handful of these chargers. But I would think that it would be necessary for these billboards, I guess this is these billboards attached to charging stations to have a lot of non-charging audience to make sure that the economics work out. We will have to take a look at the article and the CEO's insights. See these uh, stations as being uh, just for one company only. I do see it as being, you know, kind of a billboard and a local big billboard, which is great for the local businesses and everything. So I'll, I'll write that article and I'll make sure to answer all these questions. Sure. All right. Now, our final story then uh, relates to the announcement that a couple coal plants in Texas will be closing, which presents a good opportunity for solar in that Texas's electricity demands tend to be in the summer. Their peak demand does match nicely with solar and also presents the possibility that wind might actually out-generate coal in Texas next year, which is a wonderful achievement. Texas stands head, shoulders, waist, maybe even knees above all the other states in terms of deployed wind. So one can be hopeful that even as Texans enjoy the benefits of cleaner power generation, this can orient them more towards the amazing prospects that renewables have so that in time the state becomes less associated with fossil fuels and indeed more with renewables. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think the moment Texas starts to produce more renewable energy than it has with its you know, natural petroleum energy, that, that would be a, a serious turn of the corner. I thought I had read somewhere that at night it does actually produce a lot of wind energy, but to have it overweigh coal, that would be fantastic. And, and we know that in the rest of the country, re- renewables are now pretty much on par with coal. Coal, but that's that's big news, you know. Texas shutting down coal uh, power stations—that's pretty big, and I'm excited to see that. Now, it isn't every coal station, of course, and there is a lot of natural gas power generation. But it's one of these hit the big challenge first, being coal, and then we can start worrying about natural gas, at least with respect to electricity generation. One final point is that many critics of renewables, and this particularly applies to nuclear advocates. Mike Schellenberger at the Breakthrough Institute mentions this all the time, how a solar farm, a wind farm, takes up much, much, much more space than a nuclear reactor would. And that is true, but that's actually a feature. It's not a bug. And the reason it's a feature is that because you can spread out the renewables across the state, across geography, you can create local jobs in all of these different areas, restoring economic prosperity, strengthening local economies in a manner that no centralized power system can do, not even nuclear. Uh, So I'll include in the show notes a wonderful map that the American Wind Energy Association put together showing the locations of different utility-scale wind farms and wind manufacturing facilities across the states. And it's just remarkable how big or how broad a part of Texas is able to participate in the wind sector. I'm sure it's much the same case for solar, but it is perhaps something that listeners can keep in mind the next time they hear this pushback about renewables being farms instead of factories uh, or renewables being dispersed as opposed to being concentrated. That actually turns out to be a feature working in renewables favor and not in fact a flaw. Yeah, you know, I think that's something that, that we need to be really more more careful about. And we do have selective, selective thinking. But when we talk about footprint, 
if we're only talking about geographical footprint, yeah, that's one thing. But do we talk about the leakages that get that happen? And I'm not just talking about just the obvious petroleum and radioactive leakages, but they're all different types of leakages. There's heat leakages that influence the 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 the, the climate around it, the nature around it, and everything. So. I really don't think that's a very good point when they when they talk about that because yes, certainly a wind farm does take up a lot of space, but there's no oil dripping out of it. There's nothing going into the earth seeping into the water that we eventually drink or anything like that. I'm European, you know. I was there when uh, Chernobyl exploded. Well, my mom, like many other people out there, don't have thyroids anymore. So those are the other things that we have to think about too. Chernobyl does not take a lot of space. You're right. But boy, its consequences reached over many, many countries. And to this day, these people have to pay for it out of their own pockets for their medicine because of that. So I'm not, you know, 100% against nuclear. I think it's done wonderful things and everything. But we have to take the bigger picture in consideration. So footprint is really not an issue at this stage, at least none in the sense that Solar panels, when there's too much solar, it's called a happy day. Uh, wind energy, when it's, you know, we have too much of it, it's called a windy day. You know, it's much better than having radiation leak out and petroleum seeping into our waterway. I think the estimate for Chernobyl is that there would be perhaps 4,000 premature deaths associated with oh. radiation exposure, which is a little bit less than what you would find in terms of coal deaths in a year worldwide. It's roughly on par. So certainly as frightening as nuclear meltdowns are, they do not yet at least have a track record of killing vast numbers of people regularly. That is a good point to remember, even if there are many other valid reasons for questioning the expansion of nuclear, among other things being cost. That's a very good point. And, and that 4,000 number, I think, is grossly underestimated because it doesn't also mention how many people were had deformities. And again, how many people lost either thyroids or things like that. I, I think there were definitely much more than 4,000 dead people. And, yeah, and you know, those numbers can always be fudged anyways. It's, it's on its way out. Thank God. Okay, well, um, that's it for now. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back with both voices at 100%, we hope, next week. We hope you had a safe commute and uh, join us next week to get your electric fix. Bye.